Fatality Fitness Podcast, covering everything from fitness, health, and nutrition with your host, Matthew Smiley, covering top topics and answering all your fitness Q&As with featured guests. So this is the Fatality Fitness Podcast, and on this episode, I have none other than Ross Anderson, also known as The Motivational Dude. So if you don't know Ross... Ross is a motivational speaker, a consultant, a psychologist, and specialises in human optimization and well-being sciences. So, Ross, tell us a bit about yourself. So, um, first and foremost, one thing that I want to clarify, um, I, I, you know what, I, mate, I hate being called a motivational speaker um, for different reasons, but um, number one, someone, I was in a meeting the other day, and they were like, why don't you like it? And, and so when I'm on stage, if I'm speaking, if I'm a motivational speaker, I feel that that feels like I'm speaking at people, like I'm just spitting information at them. Like, I know what's best and I'm just spitting information at them and they need to absorb that. I prefer motivational conversation or motivational conversationalist. Yeah. Does that mean that you're, I know it's, a, it's not as recognisable a term, but it means that you're having a conversation with people. They're involved as much as you are. Um, I, I, I feel like it's motivational speaker, I'm, I like to think I'm quite humble, so I don't like to think as much. Obviously, you need to be confident to take out there and share value and a message to people, and I'm generally up on a stage. I'm higher up looking down at people, but I just like to, I don't know, motivational speaker for me. It's, it's kind of a funny, it's a funny term. Um, but a wee bit about me, wow. Um, so, like you said, I'm a speaker, I'm a trainer, I'm a consultant, psychologist, um, I, you know, help my, my job is to really simply help people go from a negative five back to baseline or a negative three back to baseline and beyond. Um, and I think, sadly, um, my field of psychology for probably the last 200 years has been focused on the disease model. So how do we get people from a negative 10 suicidal thought, suicidal ideation or a negative five back to baseline? Um, and that's cool, and we've got really good at bringing people from a negative space psychologically back to baseline, we're really good at that, but then what else is there? We can't just be human beings living at baseline free from you know, disease and disorder, there has to be more for us out there, and there is, and I believe there is, and, there's, and that word generally um, is aligned with potential. So positive psychology for the last sort of like seven, eight, eight years, has been focusing on, okay, how do we get people from a, a zero to a plus three, a plus nine, a plus nine, how do we help them realise their potential mentally, physically, emotionally and spiritually, and even to a degree financially, and that's what I'm all about, I guess, helping people understand, first be aware of all this information that took me, you know, over 10 years to, to sort of find and source, and then give that information to them in a way that's simple, systematic, tactical, that's not too spiritual, yeah. and hippy-pippy, or it's no too scientific. Because I think there's two sort of ends. There's a spiritualist, there's a scientist, and both of them talk about, they have this particular language that puts people off oftentimes, and it's no the language of the common person, the lay person. Like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't always speak the way they speak, although I appreciate both ends. So I, I geek out on that stuff, and I like to break it down, decipher it, and give people to it, give people that information in a way that, they can implement immediately, immediately in their life to good effect. That's saying you want to make it so you want to make it so it's digestible, don't you? Yeah. So people can. Big, I think there's a big gap between these days knowing and doing. Like 
I think I can't remember what book it's in. There's a quote out there. Someone says like, if it, if knowledge was the only answer, if knowledge was the be all end all, we'd all be walking about with six pack abs and you know millions of pounds in our bank account. But that's just not the case. So there's this big gap between we kind of know what we should be doing to a degree, and but we just can't execute. And in between there, there's a lot of stuff. There's like habit formation. There's your motivations. There's there's your why. You know that they're sort of deep-rooted whys, a why that makes you cry. There's all sorts of things we need to break into and, and sort of give to people so that they can bridge that gap and create sort of lives that they really want, lives that they can be proud of, lives, lives that they're fully fulfilled with, because I don't think people are fulfilled um, enough today. So you're talking about like people being from, you're bringing people from a negative five up to baseline. Do you think, do you feel that that's the case, that people kind of leave it to the last minute not the last minute we can always change it but do you think they always leave it to a stage where they, they're in that stage of uh, depression before they seek out help where we really should be looking into doing it but even beforehand it's that whole reactive proactive thing like we need to be more proactive than reactive like if someone's at a negative 10 and they're, you know, they're thinking about suicide, or you know, it's kind of already in their head and there's not much many people can do to sort of, if, if they're at a negative 10, for example, they're, they're thinking about doing it or they're actually just going to do it. It's in their head and that's, you know, that's their intention. It's really hard to help someone at that stage. It is and it doesn't matter how much information you have. If you're the best psychoanalysis or psychologist in the world or just someone who knows how to pull people from the brink, it doesn't matter. They're already there. They're already going to do it. So we need to be more proactive. And I mean, there's two, there's two, there's two things to look at here. I mean, if you look at, and this is why I empathise with people, especially, especially people sort of who are a bit. It's different now because there's so much information now. And like when I was in my twenties and I was suffering with panic disorder, I didn't even really know. What, what, what the word mindfulness was? Yeah, that's I was, the, I was talking about. I was actually talking about that with a client today. Like, when did when did the word when did anybody come out and speak out and say they had depression? It's only been exactly. recent. And that's another problem. Labels, labels are powerful, and labels people don't understand. If you if you assign yourself a label, you become you can become that label, and it can influence your entire being. Because labels, if you consistently tell yourself you are something. It will feed into a deep subconscious part of your psyche and that will influence how you think, how you feel, how you behave and the results you get in your life. So labels are, are dangerous, but coming back to the point about about depression and being proactive, if you look at our glo- global curriculum, so like you and I went to school in North Lanarkshire, you did go to school yep, yep. in North Lanarkshire, yep. so um, whether it be in North Lanarkshire in Glasgow or just in the Western world, in the UK or the Western world, Less than five percent of the of the Western global Western curriculum is dedicated to health, well-being, and personal development. Less than five percent is dedicated to health, well-being, and personal development. So it's no wonder we get into our mid twenties, thirties, forties, and fifties, and we're all fucked up. Hi. It's no wonder. Hi. And and I empathise with because I went through my own transition, my own journey, and I've suffered a lot of challenges, and people are suffering unnecessarily. I've seen this. Just before my conversation, before we started the podcast, people are suffering suffering unnecessarily, and people think the problem is life. As people think the problem is the problems, the problems of life. Yeah, it's not because 
then there's always going to be inevitable challenges of life. They're just that's the, the flow of life. Yeah, so people has think the problem or the problems are the problems of life, but they're not. The problem is that we don't have the tools to deal with the problems in a cool, calm, sort of constantly calm way and empowered way and a tactical way. We don't have the tools to deal with the problems. So I think that you know, part of the issue is that we don't get educated enough on this stuff. I mean, factually, less than 5% dedicated in health, well-being and personal development. But then, on the other side of that, people don't take enough pers- personal responsibility for their health, well-being and personal development. Um, and people won't also participate in their own rescue. But they will if shit has to plan. People wait for the warning sign to come on in the dashboard of life. You know what I mean? They wait till they get that eviction notice. Yeah. And they'll participate in their own rescue. And and that's why it's my job to give them the information to help to, to motivate them, to inspire them to make decisions from a more empowered and joyful place so that they don't slide down that emotional spectrum and get psychologically sick or even physically sick. So what, what do you think are the key mistakes that people make with health and well-being? Um, so there's a few. I would say, one, they don't have an awareness of, and again, I, I empathise because it comes back to that um, educational point, yep. but they don't have an, an understanding of the fundamentals. I call it the fundamentals of human optimization. So the science and philosophy of how you eat, think, move and sleep, and to a degree who you connect with, again, another conversation we can jump into. So the fundamentals, how you eat, think, move and sleep, and they are the basics, but people don't even understand the basics. So we can pick that apart, but that is one thing. I would say the fundamentals, um, uh, they don't track their health enough. So if you, if you don't track it, you can't stack it, meaning you can't grow as a human being, you can't stack it. Um, and then habit formation. Because if I sit here right now, let's say this was a webinar, and you and I were hosting a, a sort of co-hosting a webinar on sleep or something, we could talk so much about our experiences and our knowledge and our skill sets on those topics, sleep and nutrition, but it doesn't really matter if people don't have the tactics to apply it. Like, if you don't talk about habit formation, how you, to understand habit formation in its totality, how do you actually take a habit, because we are a bank of habits. Yep. Humans are 98% habitual psychologists. Just, just, just explain that to people who don't know, what if they don't know what a habit is, obviously we think, straight away we think addiction, we think, um, yeah, but, Obviously, there's more, more to it. So, yeah. going back to that little point here, yeah, human beings are a bank of habits. We're a bank of habits. We're a bank of routines. We're a bank of patterns. Some good, some bad. So if you think of yourself as an entire bank of habits, um, I was a completely different entire bank of habits 10 years ago when I was standing in front of a magistrate waiting to be sentenced to two years in jail. I had... I did have addictive habits um, and other bad habits. So collectively, I was probably more negative habits than positive habits. And and that's just an interesting way to think about you, your being as being a bank of habits. Um, and then it's about it's about understanding the process of habit formation, good and bad habits. How does a habit actually stick? Um, and how do you how can you take um, how can you install more positive habits and then naturally that sort of subsides all the bad habits? Yeah. So you want me to touch on that? Yeah, yeah, please. So if you look at New Year, for example, right, it's coming up, prime time, 
everyone gets reflective at this time of year and they start writing their New Year's resolutions. Yep. Super confident. Yep. There's facts out there to suggest that upwards of 85% of people who set New Year's resolutions fail after just three weeks. And I don't know how accurate that is, but subjectively, if you observe, it's probably true. Um, most people do set New Year's resolutions and they fall off the bandwagon after a couple of weeks. Well, see, look, wow. how, look how busy the gym can get at the start of January and then start to fade away within that free, that free week. And, and, and why is that the case? Well, first and foremost, people are sitting on the sofa drinking countless bottles of wine um, and, and North Lanarkshire wine has a different meaning. Yep. But countless bottles of wine Red wine, white wine, but fast wine. Uh, and they're eating boxes of quality street stuff. So they're, they're kind of moving into that kind of. Some of them can maybe even be experienced about a low mood, bad sleep. They've not been going to the gym. They've they've gained weight. But then their new their New Year's resolution is to become a CrossFit champion. Is to become the prime minister. Obviously, I'm joking, but they set the bar too high. Too high, yeah. This feeds into the psychology of, of habit formation. This is probably contrary to what a lot of motivational speakers or coaches would say. The habit, the habit, the intensity of the habit isn't as important as the habit itself. So the intensity of the habit isn't as important as the habit itself. Because what you're trying to do is you're trying to create a habit streak. So there's kind of a misconception that habits take upwards of 60 days. But if I said to you, um, Matthew, if you were sniffing coke and drinking alcohol every day for 30 days, do you think you'd have a habit? Oh, yeah, I'd say. <laughs> a bad one at that. Yeah, a bad habit. You're sniffing cocaine, you're drinking every single day, you've got a habit. Yeah. Over 30 days. So for me, I probably look at, science shows 60 days, sometimes people say 21 days. I, I just feel 30, 30 days is the number for me a month. Um, so I kind of focus on this series of 10s, you know, the first 10 days of doing a habit is unbearable because what you're really doing is, so I used to work in the road smiling, and um, I keep calling him Matthew Smiling because yeah. I know him from a, from a past life and that was his nickname, um, and I, I kind of got that habit, uh, ironically. Um, Must have been more than 30 days. Lay, <laughs> I used to lay um, asphalt, tarred the roads. And when you're laying um, the tar on the roads, it's kind of like, it alludes to this analogy of how habits are laid in the brain. So you lay the tar out. You might have seen these big machines laying the tar. When you're starting to lay a new habit in your brain, you're actually leaving a new a neural trace in your brain. So when you come to do a new habit, let's say it's meditation. People want to try meditation. And they're like, okay, I'm going to start meditation. They actually start to do it. The first time they do that, first 10 minutes of headspace meditation using the app, for example, they're laying a new neural, a new neural pathway in their brain. It's like tarmac in their brain. So much so that every time they do that, that habit becomes that neural trace in their brain. It's actually measurable. It's not like some sort of soft concept. It's measurable. Every time they come to do it, the neural pathway becomes stronger. So much so that it becomes easier to do. So we naturally feel that when we, we engage in a habit, it, it gets easier to do. It's because the new neural, the pathway is stronger. So that's why I say the habit is more important than the intensity of the habit. I break habits down into like 30 days. The first 10 days are unbearable. The second set of 10 days 
are uncomfortable psychologically. And then the last set of 10 days, you're unstoppable. So it goes unbearable, uncomfortable, unstoppable. And rather than trying to meditate for 10 days, eh, sorry, meditate for 20 minutes or 30 minutes, if that's your goal at New Year, or, or work out six days a week, or um, eat perfect every single meal, every single day of the week, I always say reduce it to the ridiculous. Minify the goal, simplify it. If it's meditation, you want to meditate for 20 minutes a day, why not just have one conscious breath when you're on the toilet pan? Are you yeah. in the shiver? Yeah. Because it's about the habit, not the intensity of the habit. So then, then you can create that streak. Again, it's just trying to make it digestible again, and it? It's like, don't dive in at the deep end if you can't swim. Yeah. You need to start at shallow and build it up and build it up. And I think that it's harder for people to do that today because we live a very in a very convenient world and everything everything we want we can not everything we want the really good stuff is harder to get but most things we want and um, resources are, are easy to accumulate they're easy to attain and so i think with habits we want it quicker and that's why we think if we jump in at the deep end we can get it quicker but it's actually it's the contrary that's on the contrary so um I just want to touch on a point that, that people might not know about. We have it, so you might have heard of the, the sort of thumbing effect, where people are sort of thumbing through Instagram and Facebook. Yeah. Um, and it's quite addictive. So there's an area of our brain called the dopaminergic pathways, right? So for anyone listening, just don't get bogged down by these fancy words, right? But the dopaminergic pathway is just a pathway that your dopamine, dopamine is a neurotransmitter. Um, and dopamine is, it has a certain feel. So it's involved in reward, motivation, and learning. Dopamine is involved in reward, motivation, and learning. And every time we thumb, and it's triggered by two things. One of them, novel information. Another one I'll get to in just a second. So when you're scanning through Instagram, what are you getting? Tons of novel information, tons of novelty. Okay. And it's triggering, it's hacking the dopaminergic system of the brain to drip feed you dopamine. And that gives you this sense of feel good, which is intimately involved in motivation, reward and learning. So your thumb, it triggers the dopaminergic system, it releases dopamine, and it, it kind of is like saying to yourself, oh, I'm motivated now to continue this behavior, I'll keep thumbing, I'll keep thumbing. And that's why people get addicted to scrolling through the, the phones, and that's, and by the way, the scientists who create these apps, they know this. I mean, you know, the, the, these organizations have so oftentimes have neuroscientists on board their, their panel yeah. because they know they're trying to, they're trying to up-level the share prices. If someone's on thumbing through Facebook or Instagram for more and more hours of the day, their share price will go up, their value goes up. So we need to be mindful of that, that people have ulterior motives. Coming back to this dopaminergic system, I said there was two ways we can hack it. So one is our perception of novel information, like when we're flicking through um, Instagram or Facebook. The other, though, is our subjective sense of progress. So if, for anyone listening, and um, if they want to get ahead of the game and they want to create long-lasting habits, positive long-lasting habits, get your habit. Let's say it's better sleep. Let's say it's going to the gym. We'll make it specific. We'll use the example of meditation. Let's say it's 20 minutes of meditation, right? First, reduce it to the ridiculous. Um, uh, one conscious breath a day or a one minute meditation breathe in for six, hold for two exhale for seven, do that four times over and you've just meditated for a minute of course there's a wee bit more to meditation than that um, but that's how you can easily meditate for a minute um, 
And if you want to, I can explain a wee bit more about meditation specifically later. So one conscious breath or a one-minute meditation versus 10 or 20 minutes every single day. You reduce your habit to the ridiculous. You make it specific. Then, this is key, you get a calendar. Now, the calendar doesn't even have to say 2020 on it. It could be 2017. It could be 1998. Who cares? It doesn't matter. The point is to see your days, a big dirty red marker, a blue marker or whatever. And every single day you engage with that habit, you score off X, 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 X. Now, most people might think, well, without the information, the psychological information, neuroscientific information, they might think, well, how, how is that going to help me install a positive habit in the long term? Because it hacks your psychology, a deeper part of your psychology. It hacks that dopaminergic system. It triggers that system. And we know that our sense of, a subjective sense of progress is one of the ways we can trigger that system to release dopamine to help us stay in the game. Yeah. To help us stay in the game, to help us feel motivated. That's why it's important to track, like I said earlier on, where are people going wrong? They're not tracking. So it's as simple as X, 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 every single day for 30 days, unbearable, uncomfortable, unstoppable, unbearable, un- uncomfortable, un- unstoppable. And again, a lot of people won't start a habit because it's not simple enough. They've set the bar too high, it's about floors and ceilings. And there's a, there's a gentleman, maybe some of you know, maybe some of you don't know, Isaac Newton. Isaac Newton said, an object that's, if it's static, um, if I could show you on my desk right now, right? So an object that's static, this pencil, will remain static. An object in motion will continue in motion. So in order for you to set, uh, to sort of progress with your habit, you need to take that first step. And to take that first step, the hurdle has to be small, not high. Flows and ceilings. Yep, setting the bar. You have to reduce it to the ridiculous. Because it's about... It's about playing the long game with habits. I made this issue, I made this error at the start. How is it possible for a guy on paper, let's be honest, I was a no-hoper. People who ruled me out, I was a no-hoper on paper. Um, addicted to drugs, um, two overdoses, unintentional. Um, selling drugs, taking drugs, in fights, in and out of cells, remand units, faced two years in jail. Um, mother, raised single parent family, impoverished, dad left, rejected me, I was bullied, I was the bully. There was a lot of, lived in an unenriched environment, hung about with guys who stole cars, you know, stabbed people, hurt people, sold drugs, womanizers, white beater, you know, you name it. So on record, on paper, objectively, I was a no-hoper. Well, how is it that that guy is able to now, he's about to write his first book, um, he's a motivational speaker. He's worked with some of the largest organisations in the world. Nike, Lululemon, he's Dell's National Ambassador for Health and Wellbeing. By the way, I'm not saying these things to impress people. I'm just saying it to express to them. Like, transition yeah, is possible. You're just showing it's possible. It's yeah. possible, but you have to play the long game. You have to understand habit formation. Because here's the thing. See if you implement your one-minute meditation, you reduce it to the ridiculous, you get your calendar, you focus on that process, you X off every single day, unbearable, uncomfortable, unstoppable, you minify, you reduce it to the ridiculous, you take the first step, you do that for 30 days, it's not about the intensity of the habit, it's about the habit itself, you're changing your neuropsychology, then you can stack it. Then you can add in more meditation, three minutes, five minutes, over another 30-day period, another 60-day period, or you can add in maybe 
maybe it's like okay now you've started your meditation maybe now you want to have a 60 second morning smoothie because again if you people if you look at people's diets they want to go all in humans have three meals a day I get, I get, if you give somebody a diet plan, how how often are they going? How are they going to stick to it? There's, there's no way. It's small I mean, changes, isn't it? It's making it simple. Like humans have three meals a day plus or minus snacks. If they stick to the three meal paradigm, three meals a day. That's 21 meals a week. Rather than say optimize all of those meals, why don't we just start by if your diet's terrible? Why don't we just say, um, let's optimize. You know, one of those meals, let's optimize, let's make a 60 second morning smoothie. If you optimize one of those meals, if you optimize your breakfast, for example, already you've fixed a third of your dietary habits. Already you've optimized 33% of your dietary habits. And you just do that for a month, have a 60 second morning smoothie, for example. So it's about people really understanding this simplifying process. If you simplify, if you minify, you can maximize, maximize quicker. In a weird way, it's an odd paradox. Whereas if you jump in head first, you fuck yourself, you screw yourself over. But we need, again, remember that gap? We know what we need to do. And here's the execution. We don't do it well. Some of that stuff in there that I've just spoken about helps bridge that gap, helps us understand our neuropsychology a bit better, builds our awareness and empowers us. So you've talked about where, where you started and where you've ended up now, obviously doing speak uh, talks for all these big companies. So... What kind of, where did you start out? What was your, what was your kind of first kind of habit changes you made to, to get to that kind of point? Um, I would say, so it's been a long journey. Um, a few of the biggest habits that I've had to change. Um, one was, one was my relationships. So the environment that I was, that I was in. I was being a bit more conscious of that and, and the people that I was spending time with and I can touch on that. And another one was sort of listening to my authentic thoughts. I think that was a big thing for me. So think about, like, again, maybe self-awareness. You could call that the overarching sort of word. Um, self-awareness in my relationship. So touching on self-awareness, a lot of people are influenced by many people. So like the media, their parents, their friends, their, their, their teachers, um, artists, musicians, you know, loads of different people that influence us, that tell us what we should and shouldn't do for our lives. Um, and also some people are just non-consciously flown through life. And that was me. And, and that's when you, your life is run not, for, not by you, but for you. And in order to run your life and sort of grow into that vision that you might have of yourself, you know, when, when you're out in that walk or when you're in the shower and you're sitting in the toilet panel, basically when you're in a distraction-free environment, a lot of us have these thoughts. You know, we all want more health, wealth, love and happiness. We have visions of better, thoughts of better. And I think we have them, but for, for me, in the outset, in the beginning, my environment was clouding those thoughts, and I wasn't giving myself enough mindful time, reflective time. I truly believe the more reflective you are, the more effective you are. So I was listening to my, I started listening to my own genuine, authentic thoughts. So the thoughts that pop into your head, that you negate, that you shove away, that you think, you know, I can't be that, or I shouldn't be thinking that, because I should get above my stations. And that's a big thing in the west of Scotland, by the way. We shouldn't be 
sort of growing exponentially. We shouldn't be getting better. We should, if we are, we shouldn't be talking about it. And that's a big limitation. So I started really paying attention to my own true, authentic thoughts. And to do that, I had to get out of the environment that I was in because that environment wasn't conducive to allowing those thoughts to nourish. And then come back to my relationships. One thing that I had done a long, long time ago, someone told me a bit about this, and it was to do what I now call um, an assessment, a relationship assessment. So you probably heard this when you said you'd listen to a lot of my podcast, assess your relationships to ascend your life. I started looking at my social circle. Someone said, be brutally honest when you're assessing your, assessing your social circle. And I don't just mean your friends, by the way. I mean everyone, the totality of the people you spend most of your time with. So who do you spend most of your time with? There's generally five to ten people you spend most of your, your time with. And it's your mother, father, brother, sister, friends, peers, whatever. Those you spend most of your time with. And assess them with a brutal honesty. Full transparency, brutal honesty. And when I say assess them, I mean assess them into these three categories. And this is difficult because it can rock some people, but it's a really useful tool. Value, in fact, it's invaluable if you do it properly. So the first category would be growth friend. You could call it a different name, but I would call it a growth friend. So Matthew, let's say I'm a growth friend of yours, right? That's someone who tells you not just what you want to hear, but what you need to hear. It's someone who always has your best intentions at heart. They can accept you in your worst times, in your best times. They're always lifting you. They're always helping you grow mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually. Maybe you have a problem in your life. Maybe you have a challenge. Maybe you have a sort of reservation. You can come to that person. You can tell them that thing, and you will not feel judged. Maybe it's about mental illness. Maybe it's about your sexuality. Maybe it's about, you know, your hopes and aspirations. You can go to that person and, and tell them about those things. Not only tell them, you can have conversations, deep conversations about those things. Yeah. Um, and you can also have fun with your growth friends as well, that kind of more good cheer type of fun. So that's a growth friend. And I realised that if I scanned my circle, even my family members, none of them would fit into that bracket. Not my mum. Not my necessarily my grandparents who love me. You know, that doesn't mean you say they're bad for me, but they're just not a growth friend. Didn't have anyone like that in my life. I had a lot of the opposite though, the antithesis. Call them energy vampires. If yeah, can you go? Well, those who are sporting the flamethrowers 24-7 and when you have a phone call with them it's all about me, me, me they pull you back into the dark side like Darth Vader they shackle you they hold you back kind of thing and when I looked and scanned my social circle just tons of those type of individuals my girlfriend was that type of individual most of my close mates and I was having some of these authentic thoughts and I was starting to take some action on them and they pulled me back in I remember when I was trying to smoking a lot of cannabis, I was taking a lot of cocaine, I was taking a lot of ecstasy and I was trying to stop it and I had I had I felt confident in my willpower to do that. But when you've got when your environment is overthrown that if, if you're one individual with all your environments, five to seven individuals are like, oh come on, just it's just a line. It's just, a, it's just another beer. It's just you know it's just um whatever. It's just another late night. It's just ah uh, um don't go to don't go to um, your work on the Monday or whatever, like these bad influences, then you're going to crumble. Um, so I had a lot of these sort of 
energy vampires. People were shackling me, holding me back, and, and they weren't growing, they weren't advancing, they were retracting, they were falling backward. And then you get the group in the middle, these could be called the, your acquaintances, or just people who reside in the middle. They're, they might have you, they might love you, they might be good to spend time with, but they're not necessarily an energy vampire. So what I did is I just done a big assessment of all the people in my environment. I realised I didn't have any growth friends, I had a lot of energy vampires, and that was a sobering thought. It was interesting, um, and then I started to sort of, because it's hard to sort of cut people out of your life, and I wouldn't say that that's necessarily the thing you need to do. I just think you need to distance yourself with people and operate in different social circles, and then you start to transition, you start to transform. I was talking to Matthew before we come on this podcast about a friend of mine. He was initially my videographer, um, and now he's one of my best friends, and he's been following me about that bad smell for the last two years. And he was struggling with sleep, and night terrors, anxiety, depression. He was skinny and couldn't gain weight. He didn't know much about entrepreneurship, but he knew that he wanted to start a business. And he wasn't necessarily asking me conscious questions all the time. He wasn't necessarily sitting down watching me run workshops, being super inquisitive. He was just in my presence when he was filming me and watching me operate. Um, and we're going to do a couple of posts next year about his transition, not just physically and what he looks like, but also now he doesn't have any acne. Now he doesn't, he knows how to, you know, that's not to say he doesn't have any anxiety, but he doesn't have the punishing anxiety, which is crippling. He has these sort of little fleeting bouts of anxiety that we all have from time to time, but he has the tools to deal with them now. And it's funny because he could actually, he could probably give a motivational speech himself that he spent so much time with me, so he's absorbing all this information because who you spend time with, you become. And, and someone asked me, this is a good question to you ask yourself or anyone, in order for them to develop more self-awareness and, and where they should be, the things you should be focusing their time off on. Um, I've got this thing, a, a session around, it's called um, Self-Awareness One-on-One, basically. Um, and it's tapping into your, your deep psychology. You know, the, the, the deeper you go, the more you'll grow, sort of thing. And there's some, some contemplative questions that you can ask yourself. Um, and one that I ask myself um, consistently is, if you had a billboard that you could share with, sort of there's a billboard and you can share one message, one statement, one phrase with the world, you know, and billions of people get to see that and honour that and, and sort of absorb that message, what would you write in that billboard? Because your answer will tell you a lot about yourself, and my answer would be you are a, you are the product of the five to seven people you associate with most, but not just sort of on a superficial level, on a deep level, mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually, and even to a degree financially. And um, a good question to ask yourself is it shines a light on what's important to you, and it, it sort of breeds some self awareness and some clarity. So say these people have made that change, right? They've they've changed yep. the environment that they're in. Um, how would they then go ahead and try and look at a kind of growth mindset, try and improve their optimization? I would say so. That I mean, if you're looking to just grow, to, to start to exponentially go, most grow, people start would be fundamentals. Yeah, you'd say most people are what to do with growth. Yeah. So I would say growth. focus on your fundamentals, focus on how you eat, think, move, and sleep. So let's look at the the nutritional component. Because a, a lot of people think you know a lot about nutrition, but nutrition is a, con- a, a complex thing, um, especially the gut and microbiology. So gut health has been talked about more, um, and I think that's super important and interesting. And um, uh, can you dive in? You could dive into that because obviously, like fasted uh, 
people are doing a lot of fasting now, but you you do it for a lot of different uh, reasons. You do it actually yeah. for gut health. So can you talk about that for us? Yeah, well, so I'll talk a bit about fasting and gut health then. So, I mean, here's a question. When was the last time you refrained from eating food without being sick? Say it again. When was the last time you refrained from eating food for, let's say, one whole day, 24 hours, but without being sick? Because when we get sick, when we maybe have like some sort of stomach bug or you know food poisoning, then generally we don't eat don't anyway. Eat. Yep. So when was the last time you didn't have food for a period of time, you abstained for it without being sick? Most people would say, never. Never. Not one time have I consciously consciously chosen to not have food for 24 hours. And I'll give you an analogy that I'm putting in my book. It's called the snow shovel. I'm going to call it, I think I'll call it the snow shoveler's analogy. And I guess it kind of helps people understand the benefit of fasting. So I myself intermittent fast, and as do most people, they just don't know they do, I intermittent fast every single day. So let's say most people have their last meal at 8 o'clock in the evening, and then they'll break their fast. That's why, for those of you who don't know, breakfast is called breakfast because you break your fast. When I say fast, it just means you're abstaining from eating food or you're not, in a, you're not engaging in the habit of consuming food. So most people have their last meal 7, 8, 9 in the evening and then they fast to maybe 7, 8, 9 in the morning and they break their fast. I just extend that window ever so slightly to anywhere between, and this is dependent on what's going on in my life, because if I'm speaking, if I'm on stage all day, if I'm engaging in you know, world record training or I'm just training, doing a wad or something at the gym, have some exercise, I'll, I'll, my, my nutritional profile will change. But in general, I don't eat anything until after 12 o'clock in the day. And then I'll start consuming food and then I'll stop eating food again about half seven, eight. And then I'll get into that sort of intermittent fasting process. So I do that every single day. I've been doing that every single day for six years. And then beyond that, in the last sort of like five years, I've started experimenting with more longer fasts. And I'll get into the why of that in a second. So every single day, I don't eat anything until 12 o'clock. Then beyond that, once, maybe once or twice a month, I'll do a 24-hour fast where I won't consume anything for 24 hours. Just water. So that's like, it sounds a lot, but it could be from six in the evening, my last meal, and then I don't eat anything to six in the evening the next day. Or you could do a 20-hour fast where it's like, you know, a couple of hours less. Yeah, yeah. But generally, I do two of those a month. And then once or twice a year, I do a long cleanse. And my long cleanse is coming up. And I'll probably do it at the end of January just because of the way my year's working out. Because I've got, like, New Year and then I've got some partying and, you know, a parties and I'm going away with my girlfriend. So at the end, I'll do, like, a 14-day cleanse. So that's where I'll, I'll start to sort of move towards a more plant-based diet, a vegan diet for a couple of days. Then I'll go on what I call solid food vacation, where I only consume liquid foods, so smoothies, soups, and green juices. And I make sure the green juices are low glycemic, meaning there's, there's not much sugar in them. And then I'll, I'll reduce my calories to 500 calories, and then I'll do a three-day water fast. And then I'll sort of repeat that process in the, the opposite order. Um, and why did I do that? So, first, the snow shovelers analogy, and then I'll give you another one that kind of makes sense. So, let's say 
you and I, Matthew, we live in an apartment, right? We live in a flat together and our buddies are coming over for a party. But outside it's been snowing heavily and the path is filled with snow. So I'm like, right, mate, we have to go and we have to clear this path so that people can walk up the path. So both of us grab shovels, we go outside and we start clearing that path. We get 70, 75% of the way through clearing that, that path and the snow comes down again and you're like, ah, you know, bugger, we need to do this again. So we start clearing the path again, 75% of the way through the path and um, clearing the path, snow comes down again and that just consistently happens. If that consistently happened, then we, the snow shovelers, we would be knackered, we would be bust. That is representative of the body. So the snow shovelers in that analogy represents the body's energy systems. Represents the colon, the cup, and the snow represents, can anyone guess? The food. The food that we put in our body. So if you don't allow your body to fully digest and assimilate your food, you're just con- we're just constantly putting more and more in. In that analogy, the snow shovelers, which represent the body, body's energy systems, just get tired out. So we as humans are consistently eating three meals a day, sometimes four, sometimes five. You're on a bodybuilding diet or whatever. You're trying to, you know, go on a dirty bulk or whatever, or just three times, three meals a day plus or minus snacks, or maybe you're just greedy and you eat yeah. a lot. Yeah. We're constantly putting food into our body. We're constantly filling our body with snow, if you will. We're not allowing our path to clear. So our energy systems are constantly digesting food. That's all they're doing. They're not focused on rejuvenation. So then we can't be our most, our most optimal cellularly. Over and above this, this is why I do longer fasts. So we're going to use some fancy words, but again, don't get, don't get caught up in them. Let's say in your kitchen, you, one of your worktops is knackered. You need a bit of a, your, your walls need touched up with paint, right? So you would phone, let's say, a, a labourer or a joiner or whatever, a handyman to come in and fix your worktop and then, you know, paint your walls. That is like a shorter fast when you do that. That's called autophagy, when you're actually cleansing your cells, if that makes sense. So if you phone in the joiner, they come and fix, just fix, adjust a couple of things. That's called when you fast for maybe like sort of intermittent fast to sort of 40 hours, that's called autophagy. And we actually, we're always engaging in this sort of regeneration of cells, but it speeds up the process, it betters the process, it makes it more efficient. So your cells right now that are damaged in your body by fasting intermittently or doing a little uh, more of a longer fast, it's like calling those workers to come in and fix those cells. But then when you go on these longer fasts, sort of like 48 hours and beyond, whether it be on a sort of calorie-restricted diet of 500 calories or less, that's called a fasting mimicking diet, where you can still eat and get the benefits of a fast, or a pure fast, like a water fast. I've done 10, 14-day water fasts before. Some people now are probably going to think, that's fucking crazy, but there's substance to it. It's not about weight loss. I'm not doing it for weight loss because I'm a slim guy. I lost 25 pounds. I went from 155 down to 122. I looked that's why I wanted you, know, you to dive into that there, because obviously yeah. the intermediate fasting that people are doing it for is extremely just for, is just for weight loss. Yeah. Yep. Right, so let's so go back to the mindset. Oh, do I dive in again? Sorry. So the, so the, the long-term fasts, what they do is they, they program cell death. It's called acell apoptosis. So that's like with your kitchen again. 
rather than just getting the worktops fixed and a bit of a paint, it's like you phoning a full gang of workers to come in and revamp your whole new kitchen. So that's the benefit, if that makes sense, of fasting more long term. Um, and there's also sort of other benefits, like for example, you know, we, food is abundant, and when you don't have it for a period of time, the gratitude you get for food is unbelievable. It gives you much more of an appreciation. I could go on and on. There's all sorts of intangible benefits, but you're going to ask a question. Yeah, I was just no. I was just going to say, let's dive back to the the mindset stuff. So obviously, nutrition being a big factor. What was what was yeah. other factors you were saying? So how you eat, think, move, and sleep. Um, let me touch on the mind thing. So this is a simple protocol that I use in every single day, every single day of my life. It's called the 531 protocol. Um, it's an academically studied, researched, and proven protocol. And it's five minutes of meditation, three minutes of uh, three things to be grateful for, and one act of kindness. Now, I know a lot of people may or may not have some misconceptions about these things, but let me explain. So... And that's the reason that's cool is because it's been clinically shown to reduce stress and anxiety, up-level positive emotion, and increase long-term health outcomes. And all it takes is you know less than ten minutes. Yeah. And everyone has ten minutes because the average person watches four and a half hours of TV and picks up their phone upwards of ninety-two times a day, factually speaking. And um, so we've all got time. So, you know, five minutes of meditation, three things to be grateful for, one act of kindness can actually have that impact on you. Do you want me to pick apart that or do you want me to give you some more tactics or no, we'll dive, we'll dive into the three, the three things to be grateful for because obviously a lot of people just, it's like a negative attitude, just try to change it to positive. Yep. Um, even if a negative event happens in your life, you should be looking back on it and seeing it as where, where you're at now and, and turn it into a positive kind of like what you've you're done yourself so gratitude I think a lot of people think of it as fluffy they don't really get it they think oh I just write three things down in a piece of paper that I'm grateful for and then you know I'll be, I'll be cleansed of all of life's ills and I'll feel amazing it's not how it works it's a form of mental training so f- Lots of people listening to your podcast, Matthew, will be engaged in physical training. Probably if you asked a room full of all your clients, you know, 90, 95% of people these days actually engage in some form of exercise, um, even walking, you know. Yeah. So just touching on this, physical training, you can engage in certain habits that bring about certain positive results. So I'm simplifying here, but if you want to get stronger, you lift heavy shit. If you want to get more flexible, you engage in mobility work and stretches. If you want to build your endurance, you run fast for long periods of time. Right, I'm simplifying. Yep. Making the point that loads of, our pe- loads of people engage in physical exercise and certain activities that we engage in bring about corresponding results. Makes sense? Yep. But it's the same then for our mental training. There's certain activities that bring about end results to make us more motivated, more resilient, more empathetic, more calm, less stressed, more positive, more fulfilled, more purposeful. There's all these activities that can bring about these ends. And your psychology is everything. You like everything is psychology. How you know your thoughts influence your feelings, influence your actions, influence your results. So coming back to gratitude, and by the way, when you ask a room of people, I, I do this consistently less than, on average, less than 10% train mentally and upwards of 90% train physically. Physically, But psychology is everything. Psychology is everything. So it's no wonder then we have a lot of problems. Coming back to one 
body will only achieve what the mind will allow it. Exactly, exactly. And coming back to that component of gratitude, um, to delve into that, it's not just about writing three things down. What is it? So there's a thing called the arc of gratitude, right? The arc of gratitude, A, R, C. Gratitude amplifies the good, the contentment, the happiness, the joy, feeling abundant. It amplifies the good. It reduces the R. It reduces the negative, negative thoughts, anxious thoughts, stressful thoughts. And then it's C, arc. It, see, it connects us more deeply to people, places and things, the world around us. We can wrap ourselves around them more deeply. We can have a greater sense of appreciation. Let me break that down a wee bit further. So there's different ways to approach gratitude. Gratitude is an emotional state. Some call it a secondary emotion. So the primary emotions would be fear, disgust, resentment, anger, anxiety, passion, joy. These sorts of things are like primary emotions. Psychologists call gratitude a secondary emotion. It's that sort of sense, that sensation you get when someone, you know, surprises you with a hug. An old man or woman opens the door for you, but they're more frail than you, they're older than you, they're in their 90s and you're just blown away. So it's that feeling of thankfulness that we get. But if we if we rely on other people, that means we rely that that's where gratitude is is limited because that means we're reliant on external things to happen, to come about before we can feel that sense of gratitude. So I need to bump into that old woman. I need to, you know, someone, you know, I'm, I don't have a child, but let's say I'm walking up the street with my, my, my baby boy and he's in the pram and I'm struggling to get him up the stairs and some stranger, you know, comes out of his way or her way and sort of helps me. You get that sense of gratitude. That's great. That's amazing. That sense and sort of feeling of appreciation, but that is reliant on external factors always happening. Yep. So that's by chance, but gratitude is more than that. Gratitude is a state that you can consciously call upon anywhere, anytime. And uh, when I was starting out my entrepreneurial journey five years ago, I moved back in with my mum. I was potless, I was penniless. It was the first year ever that I couldn't buy anything, anyone, anything materialistically. And I was really unhappy. It really, it really impacted me as a man, emotionally. I didn't like it. And then I started realising, I started reading about gratitude because I'd learned about it through psychology at university years prior. But I started really reading about it and exploring it. And through gratitude, and I'll explain the process of this, I was able to feel rich without being rich. I was able to feel rich without being rich. I was able to turn expectation into appreciation. And that's a big thing, because we can, there's a lot, like gratitude, if you look at gratitude, gratitude principally is affirming that there's good in, the, in your world. And then throwing on your gratitude glasses and trying to find the source of that good. So it's like, you affirm, because a lot of people don't think there's any good in their lives, and there is always good in everyone's life. Like, my mum was suicidal at one point. She was getting diagnosed with stage 3 colon cancer. She was presenting all these abnormal behaviours. My cousin, who was a supermodel down in London, in that same year all that was going on, um, had a heroin overdose and died. And on the way to the funeral, my grand took a heart attack. And there was all sorts of other challenges going on around about in her immediate life. She was in a very, very bad place. But to say there was no good in her life would be wrong. Even in what even irrespective of those circumstances, there's always, you know, yeah, there's, no, there's no, always no. good in your life. Yeah. Even if you've been raped, even if you've just, you know, almost died from a heart attack, there's always good things. So you can have always affirm that there's good in your life, even small things. So that's part of the process. 
you affirm that there's good in your life, and then you throw in the gratitude glasses and you recognize that there's good in your life, that's when you start to look for the things that are good. You start to, where is the source of this, you know, this gratitude? How can I summon more of it? And there's a couple of ways you can do that. One of them is, you know, thinking about three things that you're grateful for. Um, but it's not about writing them. It's about connecting with the emotion that that thing conjures, if that makes sense. Yeah. Another way of doing this, though, because it's really hard to understand gratitude until you feel it, until you can actually consciously create it yourself for the first time, rather than it being reliant on an external factor. A good way uh, comes from Stoic philosophy. So the Stoics, what they would do to help people understand gratitude is engage in negative visualization. So as an exercise, it's a tough one to do, but if you do it right, you should bring about a lot of sort of what we'd call negative emotions, but emotions, sadness. So you sit in a space on your own, maybe while you're listening to this podcast, you just do it. Get yourself in a distraction-free environment, sit in a space, it's quiet. You close your eyes and you think of someone that you love. It could be a dog or a person. Someone that you love, like you truly, truly love them. Generally, that's going to be your partner, your child, a lover, or your dog, your mother, father. So you get someone in your head, and you start to think about the last time you were with them. It was absolutely, it was amazing. It was filled with love. It was filled with positivity. It was filled with joy. And you build that out in your head. And then you live in that for, say, a minute or so. And you experience that rush of positive emotions. And then what you do is the difficult thing. Then you think about you waking up the following morning and they are gone, they are deceased, they are obliterated, they are no more that person or that dog or that animal. And if you do that properly, you will be filled with a lot of negative emotions, sadness, anxiety, you know, deep sorrow. But now, and you might even get some tears coming from your eyes, you might get a shaky chin, you might, you know, might feel upset. But that means you're doing it right because if you now you have something to be grateful for. Does that make sense? Yeah. So it's kind of a morbid way of going about finding a positive emotion. There's also the tactic that I call the Gralphabet. So I used to do this with my mum when I was nursing my mum through her transformation. It's like the gratitude alphabet. So I would also combine this with another state shifting exercise. Movement, motion creates emotion. So we'd go down to the foot of this big hill. You know, I'd get I'd, I'd be getting to listen to the Rocky soundtrack or something. We'd move a bit, and then we'd go to the bottom of the hill, um, and she'd have the music on, and she'd have one ear. So she'd have the music on here. She'd have one ear open, accessible to my words, because I was shouting motivational stuff. I'm not shouting at her, but I was um, expressing motivational <laughs> content. But, you know, that sort of thing. I was just encouraging her, and we were moving up the hill, and we would build a pace progressively. We're moving faster. We're getting more of a power walk, like a slow jog almost. So that mo- that movement, that motion creates emotion. It starts to get us fizzing and feeling in our bodies. Then she's hearing all this motivational mu- music, which my mum loves Rocky like I do, and that can be anchored to that movie. It can bring about even more positive emotions. And then I was getting her to do engage in the alphabet, go through the, the alphabet with gratitude in mind. So A, B, C, D, and you're moving. You're thinking about things that you can you can be grateful for. That's another good tool. Um, and one last one: object object exploration. So, think about you walk into your kitchen. It's you know a normal day. You walk into your kitchen. Your kitchen's just a kitchen, but you can. That's one perception. But another perception can be right. That's a mug, right? A mug with some some red tip. <laughs> <Some tits. laughs> a mug with some tits on it. 
But uh, as a mug, and and you can I can go to my kettle right now. There's some ginger slices in there, so there's ginger in there. That's a mug, and there's a kettle up there, so I can turn that kettle on, and I can have not just one cup of ginger tea. I can have multiple cups of ginger tea. Object exploration is basically is how you develop an appreciation for the processes of how how things come to be. So you might think that's a cup and take it for granted. That's a kettle. But that kettle can give you hot water consistently at the click of a thing, at the click of a button. This cup, which holds water, it holds water and ginger, and it, it prevents you from burning yourself and gives you that warmth. Someone made that, and that whether it's in a factory or in a bespoke manner, and then somehow that I had to get to a shop and I had to go to the shop, or it was maybe bought for me. I was going to say maybe it was a gift, and even that's got emotional attachment to it. Exactly, and it's yeah. the same. You can do it with people. You can do it with objects like. Think about water. You you take it for granted. You go in for a shower in the morning. When your water when your water's broke though, when your shower's broke, it's a pain in the ass. So every day you can get in generally, let's say three hundred and sixty out of three hundred and sixty five days a year, you can turn the shower on and you can be bathed in warm water and that can feel good and comfort and you can get a wash and everyone enjoys a, a good warm shower. But it's about really thinking well how does that water actually get to me and, and just having an appreciation you don't have to do it all the time but these are just some examples some ways that you can sort of conjure that emotion of gratitude that secondary emotion it can amplify the good it can reduce the negative and the stressful thoughts and that's why i'm saying it can connect you more to the people and the things around you in the world bring about that sense of appreciation make you feel rich without actually being rich mm-hmm. and um, it's a very very simple mental training tactic to engage with. So all these kind of training tactics and stuff, would you, has anybody been a big influence to you? Any kind of books or kind of podcasts that you advise anybody to listen to to kind of try out these kind of methods and stuff that we talk about? Right, so probably going to say something that you might not expect, but there's definitely, I can give you the more obvious answer of people who, people in books have inspired me, but Probably my biggest inspiration, if I was to be honest, is my father. Because my father's not in my life. My mum and dad, dad get divorced. He was in and out of my life till I was 13. Then he rejected me. That was hard for me to handle emotionally. I wore that burden unknowingly, like a, like a building on my back. It manifested a lot of unfruitful behaviours in me, aggressive behaviours, emotional outbursts. And... When I think about my father now, so my father's very unhealthy, he has diabetes, he's going blind, he was a womanizer, he beat my mum up, he punched, and when I was, my mum was nine, ten months pregnant, he punched my mum in the belly, there was complications, my family members would tell me that my dad would, you know, some stories you hear, there was the last biscuit in the tin and I'm four years of age, and my dad would take that biscuit out of the tin and go, oh, do you want this, and then eat it in front of me. You know, he wasn't a very nice individual. And I pity my father, and I think about all the ways that he's not realised his potential, he's actually reverted. You know, he's one of those energy vampires. He's someone who's just lacked a lot of progress in his life. So I guess in some weird, deep way, emotionally, I am always trying to get further away from that guy. Right. So the, the more that I realise, the less I'm like him. Um, I can detach myself to him. So I guess what I'm trying to say is, Yes, you want to be distant from those who are in your life who are not good, but you also want to be mindful of them occasionally, use them as fuel. Yep. Because those who are 
those who are shown, they're showing you something. When you're thinking, I don't like someone, I don't like that thing they're doing, that use that as fuel because that can help project you forward to the antithesis, the opposite of that. So that's definitely someone who inspires me in an odd way. Um, another individual who has inspired me greatly has been, I would say, I mean, there's lists of them, Brendan Burchard online. That guy is just like the modern-day Tony Robbins. He's fantastic. His work is just so down to earth, so real, so honest, so humble, but at the same time very tactical. Um, in terms of books, and feel free to ask me more questions, in terms of books, do you know one of the, the best books that maybe I could, I don't know if I could find it, one of the best books that I've ever, that I was ever, that I ever purchased wasn't actually a book that's easy to find. It's not in these lists of blogs if you type in, you know, the best entrepreneurial or the best growth mindset books or the best yeah. fitness book. You would never see it in that list because it's actually a book called Passa. It's the, the book on psychology. Um, it's an expensive book. I think it's about 40 or 50 pounds. It's by McGraw and Hill. Um, it's a Passa book. And basically it goes into all the, I've frozen, but hopefully you can hear me. Oh, there yeah, we go. I can hear you stuff, yeah. Um, it basically breaks down all the components of psychology that I started that laid the foundations for my knowledge, my skill set within psychology. It goes down, and it, like we said earlier on, memory psychology, abnormal psychology, developmental psychology, positive psychology, psychoanalytical. And just reading through that would be really interesting for anyone who's looking to move from a negative space back to baseline or beyond to realize their potential. Um, another fantastic book that's widely accessible, I'll give you two. Jack Hanfield, Success Principles. It's a, it's a bit outdated. It's probably about years old, but the fundamentals, the core of it is fantastic. Short chapters, stories and information, calls to action and exercises, all anyone needs. Um, you could read that book. You could buy that one book and read that every single day and experiment with that for the next five years and you, you know, life would transform if you only just read that book. Um, a more recent one by Tim Ferriss. I love, I feel like aligned with Tim Ferriss because of the way he approaches things in a very sort of tactical, strategic depth, depth sort of strategic manner with depth. Um, his book, Tools of Titans, maybe you've read that. I love that. It's broken, down in, it's broken down in the healthy, wealthy and wise. It's a great book for on the toilet pan. I'm talking about toilet pans a lot in this session. <laughs> um, but it's broken down in healthy, wealthy and wise. Um, so maybe you're looking to up-level your health, then you've got, you know, a big, big, do you want me to, is it accessible? I've got, maybe I've got some, I'm just looking over here because this is, I'm in my kitchen right now and I've got a bookshelf. Um, I could show you, if you really wanted me, I could grab it quite quickly. Talk, grab it if you want. Yeah, I'll you talk, want I'll talk about a few, I'll, I'll talk about a few that I've been, um, I've on, been listening to recently, I've been listening to the... It's basically a big red and yellow book, bold writing. It's called. It's written by Tim Ferriss. It's called Tools of Titans. It's about twenty to twenty-five pounds to buy. It's broken down into healthy and wealthy wise. Um, it's about one hundred and fifty to two hundred pages for each chapter. And basically, what he, what he's done is he's went to all the titans, as he calls them, within those respective fields. So nutrition, business, wisdom, and he's asked them loads of cool questions. And again, actually, for you, Matthew, the questions that he's asked will be great questions for you to ask your guests in the future. And that's where I got that billboard question from. You know, if you had to share a message with the world to put it on a billboard, what would it be? And these are great tools for asking your sort of building self-awareness. So Jack Canfield's Success Principles, Tools of Titans, 
really, really short, snappy, immediately implementable books. My dad inspires me, people like Tony Robbins, people, you know who inspires me? People, it doesn't have to be these people who are widely known, but, but individuals who just know what they want, listen to their own authentic thoughts and go after it, they chase it. And, um, you know, a man or a woman with a why, a strong why, will, will overcome any how, any obstacle. And I admire people, because I have been, I never, like my entrepreneurial journey was difficult and my life has been full of challenges. And what, I've, what I'm really proud of is the fact that I've got to where I'm at now in my personal life and in my business life. Yes, people have helped me along the way, but I've had to be super resourceful, very, very resourceful. It's not about your resources, it's about your resourcefulness, as Tony Robbins said. And I've had to be that because I wasn't born with a silver spoon in my mouth. I was born in a single parent family, which is quite common now, but I didn't have a dad around. My mum struggled financially. She had me and my sister at 22, very, very young to have two children. And, um, you know, I, I didn't really live a sort of very, very privileged life. There's obviously things to be grateful for. There's always things to be grateful for. Um, but at the same time, you know, no investor gave me money, no family member passed away and left me money. Everything has, has, has had to be sort of sourced and fought for. And actually, if you to fast, if you to have rewound maybe five years, I would have maybe a little bit bitter and resentful of that. Now, because of how much effort I put in my mind and how much I train my mind, so not only physical training but mental training, I've learned that every single challenge that I face, just to look at it from a different perspective and say, what's this teaching me? How is this making me better? And and it just, you know, you just accept that flow of life. Well, let's, um, let's fast forward it then. So what, what are we expecting in 2020? What's the motivational dude? So what's, what's happening? Three main goals. The first half of the year, the first six months of the year is building my online platforms, um, is building my signature course, um, which will be, you know, the fundamentals of human optimization. It will be how you eat, think, move and sleep. I want it to be very tactical, very implementable, and people can actually, I'll break that down into four sub-courses, so people can, you know, maybe someone just wants to learn about sleep or nutrition or the mental training side of things, and that will be sort of very aligned with the book that I'm going to start writing after June, sorry. So June, uh, January to June is about creating online courses because there's a lot, of, a lot of people reach out to me. I'm only one guy and I do a lot of work anyway, work with loads of organisations and, and things like that. So I can't help everyone and that pains me, that irritates me. So I want to create those courses so I can help more lives. Yeah. And then from June to maybe September, October, I'm writing my book. And then September, October, I'm, I'm going to re-attempt the world record and hopefully smash that. And then I'm going to be planning my book tour for uh, early January 2021. For anybody that doesn't know, Ross attempted to do a world record attempt of the most amount of chesty floor, burpees in an hour. Yeah. Obviously, yeah. a lot of things happened on the day, uh, technical issues. So he's, I think he's mad to try it again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm a bit mad but um, you know a lot of people were not a lot a lot of people were praising me but there was a few people who actually said oh why are you in it if you're not in it to win it of course I was in it to win it but yeah. I think what he said shows a fundamental shortcoming in how a lot of people approach their goals in life so goals like the, there's only opportunities there's no guarantees 
you, you know, proper prior proper prior the six P's proper prior preparation promotes peak performance. Or for the Scottish out there, prior proper prior preparation um, prevents piss poor performance. <laughs> the six P's. So you can prepare as much as you like, and that's good, and that elevates your chances of success. But there's only opportunities. There's no guarantees, and so you should have big push goals. You should be pushing yourself. You should be going all in, but don't be deterred by the fact that you might not hit your mark because probably ninety percent of the goals, um, of, of, of you know, of a hundred percent of the things that I've tried to attempt, the goals that I've tried to acquire, ninety percent of them, ninety-five percent of them haven't gone my way the first, second, third, fourth, fifth time. So you just have to be persistent and be disciplined and enjoy the process. That's the thing. You, that, you won't know. Why? You won't know Sorry. if you achieve it if you don't if you don't try it. But it's about enjoying, it's about, again, listening to those, listening to your authentic thoughts. I wanted to do that. I so badly wanted to push because I'd realised that I'd been training. I'd, I'd, let's say I'd been exercising for a long period of time. I hadn't been training towards a big goal. And I had been fulfilling and training myself mentally for a while, but never really pushing my potential physically. So I wanted to really engage in a physical pursuit. While, although it is a bit mental, well, it is a lot mental, especially on the day, but it's very physical in the training phase. But I enjoyed every ounce of that. Like, you know, the result. Yeah, you can, yeah, you can see it on the build-up as well. You see it on the build-up. You were enjoying it, going down exactly. to, going down to Princess Square and getting people involved, yeah. and and also like learning more. Like I had never done a VO2 max test before. I'd never done a lactate test. I'd never um, really fully assessed my gut. Well, I'd done a gut analysis and assessment with a company called Viome a couple of years prior, but I'd done it consistently, and that's why I'm excited to put it in the book. I also took my blood work every single month from January all the way through, sometimes twice a month, to look at my testosterone, to look at my vitamin B12, to look at my biomarkers for inflammation. You know, that's why I was talking about earlier on, one of, you said, what are one of the things that people aren't doing for their health? Well, they're not mastering, they're not mastering um, the fundamentals of how you eat, think, move, and sleep. They're not, they don't understand habit formation and they don't track it and then you can't stack it. So like a lot of people might be transitioning from vegan to paleo or paleo to vegan and they might subjectively think, well, I feel good. Well, do you feel good? Really though, objectively under the threshold of conscious awareness, what is, what's your biomarkers? Yeah, so that was an interesting part of the process as well. But it was an interesting journey. I loved every bit of the process and I can't wait to do it again. I'm excited. Well, Ross, it's been a pleasure. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing what's happening in 2020. How does how do people uh, find out what you're up to? So, um, so they can follow me on Instagram. Uh, it's the motivational dude, the not the the motivational dude on Instagram on Facebook. Um, next year, also one thing that people might like to hear about is I've never really been all in on YouTube, and and because of my videographer friend, who's now my best friend now. He's um he's coming on board and we're going to go all in in content and um, because ninety percent of my business is offline next year I want to change that because I want to help more people so I really want to put more content out there so the YouTube channel is sh- so shit right now I've never really put conscious effort in it but next year I will so um and if they're on LinkedIn if they are maybe a professional um it's just Ross Anderson on LinkedIn because I'm very active on Instagram and LinkedIn those would be the two two main ones right Ross. It's been a pleasure. Thanks very much. Awesome. If there's any links or books or anything, you know, anyone is curious about, you can send me a message and I can send you some, okay. some notes on that. I hope everything goes well. I'm excited to see what's happening with your podcast and who's going to come on. If I can um, give you any recommendations for 
guests and also interesting some people. people. So, you know, I'd love to do that. Great. Thanks very much. Cheers. Awesome. Have an amazing 2020, dude. Yeah, cheers.